To pick up where we left off last week, we've been in a series called Spiritual Warfare. And we've been in this series a long time, but I think it's important. And if you've ever seen spiritual warfare going on, you're seeing it going on right now in this country. You see it all around us. You see all this stuff going on, all this nonsense, all this stuff that's truly is just contrary to the Word of God. It's contrary to biblical principles. And, and why are they so proud of that? Because we're watching Romans 1 play out in our midst right now. Okay, if you don't know what Romans 1 says, I'd, I'd encourage you to go back and read it because you will see what's going on right here. But last week we talked about a number of things, but we we're talking about what our biggest problem was, right? We've talked about our enemy. I said there were four fundamental questions that every believer must be able to answer. Who is God? And this is according to the Bible, not according to what your opinion is of God. Because here's the problem. I go out on the streets, I ask the average person, who is God? And they're going to come up with some far-fetched thing, or it could be accurate, or it could be completely off base. We don't know. But the problem is, is who gets to choose who God is? Ultimately, that would be God, right? We need to know what the Bible says he, who he is. Then the second question is, who are we in relationship to him? Right? Who does he say that we are? The third one is, how do we worship him? We were created as beings that worship. God demands worship. That is part of our relationship, this love relationship. We don't worship him because we have to. We worship him because we want to. Right? We would not be here if it was not for him because he created everything. And then lastly is, who is our enemy? And we talked, we've been talking about that for several weeks, and we've talked about when did Satan fall and all of this other stuff, leading up to the points that we're getting to here very soon. We're almost done with this portion of the series, and we're going to go into another one, which I'll talk about momentarily. But it's the understanding of, first of all, the enemy's weapons. Secondly, is how does he come against us? And then thirdly, is what's really our biggest problem? And that's where we left off last week, is our biggest problem is not the devil, our biggest problem is us, and we're going to expand upon that today. So open your Bibles up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 1. We've read this every week, and today we're going to break this down a little bit. I've been promising you that we're going to break this down piece by piece, and we're going to start that today. You didn't bring a Bible. I have it up on the screen for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. I read out of the New King James, just in case you're wondering where this comes from. It says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with, the, with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity uh, and ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Here we are looking at this passage. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, right? We have probably quoted this in our lives hundreds of times. It's a popular verse, but we don't really process what this is telling us. I mean, yes, we know that, that our weapons are not carnal. They're, they're of God. They're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments and all of this other stuff. But the problem is, is we don't understand what the whole carnal aspect is telling us. Because part of it is, when we think of things carnal in the church world, we have two worlds, essentially. We have the fleshly world and we have the spiritual world. And we use these church words that don't really make a lot of sense because you don't use those words outside of church. You don't walk up to some toddler in the grocery store throwing a fit like, he's just acting out in the flesh, right? 
they'd look at you and think you're nuts. They'd probably throw you in a rubber room or something. Because why? We don't use that. Church words. We use church words all the time. Let's get together for a time of fellowship. The rest of the world gets together and hangs out. But church, we fellowship. Right? And nobody else knows what that means. But if you've you're grown up in church, you know what it means. And we just throw these words loosely around. But we never think them through. And we apply the same principle to Scripture. We don't look at Scripture and process the information that's there that's right in front of us. So when we look at verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Carnal, when we think carnal, we immediately think of things that we can touch, things that we can hold, things that we can do something with. What would be a carnal weapon? Well, a gun would be a carnal weapon, right? Or perhaps a knife. Maybe a samurai sword. I don't know. Nunchucks, if you have some. If you have some, we'd love to see you demonstrate how to use them. And we'd really like to see it if you don't know how to use them, and we'd still like you to demonstrate that. But, but this is the things that we think of when we think of carnal. Naturally, this is where we go. We think of things that we must do, or things that we can do for that matter. But carnal isn't just a physical thing, but it's our approach to the situation. When we break this down, we're going to look at what carnal means. So turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 6. This is Paul speaking, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, when we look at this, we, we compare these two things. The weapons of a warfare are not carnal. And here he's talking about being carnally minded. And these have a lot more to do with one another than we think of because we separate them all the time. We think weapons and carnal, physical, things I can hold, things I can touch, things I can see. And here he's talking about carnally minded. This means I'm just not thinking right. I'm not thinking like God thinks. But the problem is, is both of these things should be coming together. The carnality of life that we've developed a concept of how we do battle. And that's what we're going to talk about today is to be carnally minded. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Now, obviously, we would never go into a spiritual warfare with a gun or a sword or anything like that. It would be things spiritual. But the problem is, is when we mesh these two together, we do things that are nothing more than carnality, not really doing spiritual warfare. So I'm going to give you a quick list that I put together. There are more than this. Uh, but this is, just gives you a quick idea. Now, some of these things may not make any sense to you, but I'll go through them anyway. Warring tongues would be the first one, right? Back in the late 80s and in the 90s, there was a concept called warring tongues, which we're going to get into a lot more here in just a, in a little bit. Another one was this concept of elevated places. So people that were going to do spiritual warfare, we're going to do war with the devil, would rent airplanes to get up as high as they could. Why? Because the, the demons of the power of the air. All of this stuff. Or they'd go into these skyscrapers and say, we're going to do battle up here. We've got to get where the devil's at. Right? These were the things that were going on. What are we doing? We're carnally minded. We're trying to do things. How about shouting? We've gotten the concept that the louder we get, the more spiritual we are and we're doing warfare with the enemy. Right? And we've got to yell. The only time we yell is during football games. Or, I don't want to talk about football. <laughs> Another thing that we use. We use fasting as a spiritual warfare tool. But what is fasting? I don't have time to build all of this, but fasting is not anything that does any damage to the enemy, and it most certainly doesn't do anything to make God look favorable upon you, because if that's the case, the Pharisees had it right all along, because they were fasting all the time. What does fasting do? Crucifies the flesh. 
brings it into subjection to God. Now, through that process, we can grow in our concept of how we do things spiritually, but it doesn't bring us any closer to God and doesn't make us any more necessarily effective just by lack of food. Another one, we have these prayer marathons where they just pray and we're just going to pray until we stop. And they can go for hours. I've sat through meetings, four hours, five hours, sometimes longer. I know some of you probably have been in ones longer than that. When I was younger, when they were really deep in prayer, I saw it as a perfect opportunity to take a nap. You know, but, but, but we do these things. Why? We think we're moving God to just doing all these prayer vigils, these prayer rituals, whatever you want to call it. Another thing that we do is we chase anointings. I've got to have this gift, so I'm going to go to this guy because he claims to have it, and there's a bunch of people, and he's on TV, and he says, if I just send him $104.62, that I'll be blessed forever. And he'll send me some water I can drink that will take care of that. Right? I mean, all this nonsense that we do, we chase anointings. And the last one, and we're going to get right into this, is binding and loosing. Right? We say we bind the enemy and we loose this. The problem is, when we do that, we don't know what we're doing. We haven't thought this through. This is a misunderstood concept that comes from Scripture. It actually does come out of Scripture, but we're not applying it correctly, and we don't understand it. But we've hijacked a verse to make it fit what we want it to do, if it's a spiritual warfare thing. So that's where we're going. Matthew chapter 16. Turn over there. Write these references down. I tend to go fast. I do apologize. I get to going. I try to slow down. My wife gripes at me every week, but I can't promise that I will. So just write them down. You can look them up later. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 13. There's two portions of Matthew we're going to look at here. Verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea, yeah, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now let's just stop there. You've got to remember that the Israelites have been leading the way for the coming Messiah. They're still waiting today, the Jews are, but they've been waiting. Or the Christ, which is nothing more than the Redeemer, the Messiah, whatever you want to say. They're waiting for him. And this is Peter. This is a bold statement. You're him. This is a big deal. Verse 17. Jesus answered and said to them, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, depending on your version, shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So we're going to break this down here for just a moment. What is being said here? These last couple verses that we looked at, we're going to look at verse 18. And I'm going to explain this stuff and we'll get into it a little bit deeper. What is being said here? First of all, in verse 18 it says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. So he's saying on this rock. What rock is he referring to? Some have said he's referring to Peter. Right? You know who says that? The Catholic Church. They believe that Peter was the first... Pope, and this is the verse where they say the, that we are the only church that Jesus Christ himself ever set up. Okay? So that's one way to look at it. Another one is just this analogy that he's giving. I'm building my church on this rock. 
foundation, you know, we think of it that way. But what was he really saying? This thing goes deeper, and this is where it requires some study and some research to understand. So he's in Caesarea Philippi, and you've got to understand that the region, this thing was pagan. It was the most pagan place in the Palestine area. And most devout Jews would probably avoid it altogether. They would never go there. But Jesus went there deliberately. So in the rocky part of the city, there was on his bluff, there were two temples. And one was built to honor Caesar because they worshipped Caesar. Caesars were God, every one of them. They believed that they were God. And that alone would be considered blasphemy to the Jews because they obviously didn't accept that. But nearby there was another temple that was built to worship the Greek god Pan. In fact, it was the worldwide center for Pan worship. And as part of their devotion, the followers of Pan would do some very lewd things, things that are so nasty, we're not even going to talk about it. Just take my word for it. They're bad. And right next to Pan's temple was a great crevice in the ground. And this was thought to be the place where the dead spirits would go and come from hell. It was called the gates of hell. You see, this was a literal place. Now let's think about this for a minute. This wasn't some figurative language that Jesus is saying. This was the place where they came to worship their gods. They, they say that there was carvings in all of these different things that they would put different idols in and whatnot. But this was the place known as the gates of hell. They, they, obviously it's not, it's physical, but this is what they called it because they were worshiping their gods. And here Jesus comes doing what Jesus does. He goes counterculture, right? He comes up and he essentially is spitting in the face of everybody who denies the one true God and says, you say that I am the Son of God and upon this rock, in other words, the gates of hell, I will build my church, my assembly, my people, and the gates of hell, they won't prevail against it. This is a powerful statement that we quickly dismiss or overlook. We you know, make an analogy or something like that. But he's saying, I'm going to build my church right here at the foot of hell. I'll build it right here, and nothing and nobody can come against my church. Very powerful statement. The next part of this, in verse 19, it says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so we look at this, the keys of the kingdom analogy that he's giving gives us an idea of what this is talking about. Did he hand him literal physical keys? Here you go. No, of course not. You know, if I hand you the keys to my truck, what can you do? You can drive it. You can operate it. There's no physical keys to heaven. Okay, let's just uh, squash that. I'm sure you guys were confused by that. But let's look over in John chapter 20 real quick. John 20 and verse 19 is where we're going to start. And be thinking of the keys of the kingdom analogy. Keep that in your head as we go here. John chapter 20 and verse 19. This is the part where Jesus is commissioning the apostles to go into all the world and do all these things. He's giving them authority. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is right before he ascended. This is after he is resurrected. This is inside that, that window of time that he's back here on earth getting ready to go. And this, again, this is one of those questions that when does somebody receive the Holy Spirit and all of that? It's a, we, we can talk about the gift of tongues and all of this kind of stuff. But essentially there's two of those. And here he is, they received it prior to Acts 2. Okay, Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. 
if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now this can be confusing if you don't look at it inside the context of what's happening. And remember, we always allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We don't put our spin on it. My opinion of it doesn't matter. What does the Bible say about itself? So what is he telling them here? He's telling them that I am giving you the authority to be my ambassadors. And so what he's saying is that when you go to somebody, you have the authority to tell them that if they give their lives to me, Make me their Lord and make me their saviors. You have the authority to tell them that their sins are forgiven. But if somebody rejects that, if they say no, then you have that same authority to keep those sins there because they are not forgiven. He's giving them the authority to act on his behalf. He's getting ready to go. Somebody's got to take the reins. And here he is giving this to them. Now think about that. The kings, the keys of the kingdom handed to them. He's giving them the authority, right? Luke 4 and 18. Don't turn there, but this is out of Isaiah 61. This is why Jesus came. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Here He's telling all the people that surrender their lives to Christ that they are free, that they are forgiven. Why did Jesus come? To proclaim liberty, to set people free. Right? Free from what? Free from all the works of the enemy. And he's giving that exact same command to all the apostles. That you go, you have my authority. When you go, you're acting on my behalf. You have my name. You have my authority. You go and do it. The keys of the kingdoms are handed to them. You see what I'm saying? The kingdom of God. Now look, flip over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, just a couple chapters from where we were because we're going to get into this binding and loosing part. Matthew 18 and verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even hear the church... Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. What are we talking about? Church discipline. When he says brother, what is a brother? A fellow believer. We're talking about how we deal with one another when somebody sins against us. We go to them directly to look for repentance and all of that. Or we see somebody that's off base. We see them doing something. Maybe it's not a sin against us. They're just sinning. And so we go to them and say, hey, man, what's going on? We bring the repentance. If they won't listen to that, we take two or three, then we go and do the same thing. And if they won't listen to the two or three elders, then they go, uh, you bring them before the church. And if they won't listen to that, what do we do? We wipe the dust off our feet. We, we forgive them. We turn them over to the hands of the enemy, basically, because we want them to come to repentance, right? Verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. There's so many misused verses in this and misapplied scriptures we're going to talk about. First of all, we've got to look at the context of what is going on. What do we just say? It's church discipline. That's the context of the passage. And here Jesus is expanding what he had told them just two chapters earlier about going and proclaiming the binding and loosing, the forgiveness of sins and all of this kind of stuff. And the process is bringing an offending brother back into right standing and discipleship. 
And then when we get to the part about two or three witnesses, which is in verse 16, this actually goes back to Deuteronomy 19, about bringing a charge against someone for wrongdoing. That you have to have two or three witnesses. That you don't just do this by yourself. You don't just go and say, well, he said this, so therefore it is. You had to have a couple of witnesses. Um, again, the concept of binding and loosing here is physical and authoritative duty given unto us by Christ. But what are we binding and loosing? We're loosing, binding and loosing the individuals based on the principles of God. Now, the church has turned this into a spiritual thing. That we bind Satan and we loose Good things, hopefully, right? But when we compare those two things, that's not what they're talking about. Think about it logically like this. If we bind Satan, how long is he bound? Because Christians for years have been doing this, and eventually you would think they'd run out of demons. There is a finite number of them. We don't know what it is. But you would think they'd eventually run out. They'd all be bound. Or how about this? How does he get unbound? What if some crazy believer actually loosed him? I lose Satan, Right? That'd be stupid. Well, then he'd be loosed in heaven, right? That doesn't make any sense. These things don't compute, but we have to look at everything contextually. So when we talk about carnally minded and the weapons of our warfare not being carnal. Here is again, we've built a doctrine based off a few scriptures that we've taken out of context and removed them. And look at the other ones. If, if again, I say that if two of you on earth concern anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Two or three witnesses, if two of you ask, saying that this guy, he's not repenting. Okay, you have my authority. For there, where there are two or three gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You don't go to a conference, a big conference, that they don't quote this verse. Jesus, you said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there you are in the midst of them. What if there's one? Did Jesus never leave us or forsake us? Because that is what it's implying, that we have to have two together to have Jesus with us. No, he is saying that I, you have my authority. And if you follow the way that we told you to do it, it's just like I'm standing right there saying it myself. That is the implication. Again, we built this huge doctrine on something, but it doesn't fit. So we get that. We've got all of this thing. That's just one of them. But let's look at this whole concept of warring tongues. Okay, briefly, briefly. First of all, I'll give you a hint. Warring tongues. It's not in the Bible. I remember seeing this with some very well-known ministry back in the day. And this isn't really a big deal anymore. You don't hear much about this. But there are still people that hold to this concept. That people would show up to church in fatigues, which is basically an army uniform or something. Why? They're going to do war with the devil. So they show up fatigued. Some of them actually did the face paint thing, too. It was, it was weird. Um, and, of course, they'd show up and they would shout very loud because you've got to shout at the devil because he can't hear, apparently. He needs a hearing aid or something. I've watched people show up in karate gear. One guy said, I'm a black belt, so therefore I can do more spiritual warfare. I'm like, no, you can probably break a brick with your hand, but that has nothing to do with anything, and you probably whip my tail. So, but, but, again, warring tongues, what are we looking at? First of all, a question we have to ask, are tongues a weapon? Okay. So we're going to kind of backtrack here for just a moment. If you remember when we talked about our, the Holy Spirit series, we went through all of this. I think we spent three months teaching on the Holy Spirit and all of this thing. We've got to understand what tongues are. And I don't have time to build the home framework for this again. But 1 Corinthians 14, 14 says this. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. 
Now this is Paul talking, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 is dealing with the Corinthian church, right? And they were very avid. They loved the spiritual gifts they were doing, but they were kind of getting out of order. And Paul is bringing some correction there. And he talks about that, that, that you are babes in Christ in the early parts of the, the book. But anyway, and so he's getting in here and he's explaining the difference between this private use of tongues and this public use, the tongues and interpretation. He's breaking this down. So over in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, this should be a familiar passage of Scripture because we're talking about the armor of God. Starting in verse 10, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand or stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all to, all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now watch this, verse 18. Praying always, with all prayer and supplication, in the Spirit. Now, the question would be, is praying in the Spirit the same thing as praying in tongues? We just saw that, that when, um, when I pray in a tongue, my mind is unfruitful, my spirit prays. I kind of said that backwards, but that's the gist of it. My spirit prays, praying in the Spirit. It means it's something that I can't just do. It is something that the Spirit is enabling me. Obviously, I have to submit to that. But it's interesting that the concept of praying in the Spirit is in the place with the armor of God. It's interesting that it's there because that does tell me something. That is, there is a spiritual warfare application to it. But maybe we don't understand but all of that aspect. So why would this be here? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Again, this is they're breaking these two things down. But he edifies himself. Why would praying in the Spirit or praying in tongues be mentioned with the armor of God? Well, we just walk, learned what tongues does. It doesn't do anything, but it edifies the one. This is because our battle is not with Satan. Our battle is with us. See, the thing we've got to understand is that Satan's defeated. Jesus said that. He made a show of them openly. They've de they're a defeated foe. Right? So why do we even put on the armor of God? Well, if he's defeated, we do this. And let's look at this. Verse 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, what are wiles? Right? Again, we, we quickly read through these things to get to the parts that we care about. The, the, the word of God is the sword and all this other stuff. But what is this talking about? What are wiles? This comes from the Greek word, I'm not going to say this right, methodia, something like that, which is just basically where we get our English word methods. Another way you could say that is cunningness or deception, craftiness. What's he telling us? That we understand his ways. We put on the armor of God to deal with the ways that he comes against us. Now let's interchange some of these words. That you may be able to stand against the methods of the devil. That you may be able to stand against the cunningness of the devil. That you may be able to stand against the deception of the devil. That you may be able to stand against the craftiness of of the devil. When you put those other words in there, suddenly we realize, wait a minute, these aren't weapons that he's bringing against us. It's his methods of doing things. 
He has no weapons against us because he's already defeated. That's the key. That's the part that we have to understand. He's defeated, therefore he cannot bring anything against us. 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, the context of this passage is dealing with submission to authority or submission to an elder, dealing with things in the church. Verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brother, brotherhood in the world. Walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This tells us that he has no weapons or he's seeking whom he will devour. In other words, he can't devour you. Unless we allow him. Now, a lot of people have used the analogy, he's like a toothless lion. That's incorrect. He's not toothless. He's got teeth because he can do damage, but we have to let him. But it's more like Daniel and the lion's den. Their mouths are shut. Now, if we go and open them, that's our fault. But what is the whole purpose of this? Is this a battlefield that we are fighting is going on inside of us. We're trying to do war with the enemy. And it's not that prayer is not important. And it's not that there aren't ungodly things that we need to pray against inside of this world. But when these verses are talking about is the battle within. Because if every believer would take the principles of Scripture and apply it to themselves. In other words, be not just hearers of the word, but actually be doers of it. We wouldn't have to fight all this nonsense going on in the world because we'd all be on the same page. But we're not. We don't do these things. We don't put on the whole armor of God, and therefore, because we don't do that, we don't recognize the methods that the devil uses against us. So the battlefield is inside of us. Look at some of these verses. 1 Peter 2 and verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against your soul. Who does the abstaining? We do. What fleshly lusts are they talking about, and what do they do? Well, obviously, fleshly lusts are obvious, but they war against the soul. The soul could be interchanged with your mind. Luke 6 and 45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from, what which, from that which fills his heart. If we're speaking evil, that should be a sign to us of where we stand. Mark 7, starting in verse 20. Just write these down. You don't have to turn there. And he said, what comes out of a man, what defiles a man, this is Jesus speaking, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thought, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. And right here he is differentiating. He's saying that the things from outside of a man don't defile. It's what's inside defile. How do we do spiritual warfare? We fix the things inside. Philippians 4.8. Finally, Brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Why do we dwell on the good things that God has said? Because then we won't get caught up in all the nonsense. If we're dwelling on the things that God has said is good, then we'll recognize the thing that the world says is good doesn't measure up with what God said was good. Colossians chapter 3, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Whose mind? Yours. Who does the setting? You do. On the things above, what are we talking about? The things of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. 
For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Why is he differentiating here again? Because we have to set our mind on the things of God. Be not carnally minded. You see how all of these things are tying together. We've made spiritual warfare into our battle with the devil instead of our battle with with the thing that keeps us from the things of God, and that is us. Our attitude, our mindset, our mind, will, and emotions. We're moved emotionally. We're moved by things we see. We're moved by the things that we can touch. We're not moved by the things that God said. One more, James chapter 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown, brings forth death. Look at that verse. Let no one say that I am tempted by God. But what do we say? God never gives you more than you can handle, right? That's not in the Bible. What are we saying? If we have more than we can handle and if it's God that gave it to us, then he's tempted us to fail. Doesn't fit, right? It talks about the sin and the desires. There are, these are just a few out of literally dozens and dozens of these that we can talk about. But the bottom line is this. We must die to self, pick up our cross, and follow Christ. It's not the methods that we use that does spiritual warfare. It's our obedience to Jesus. It's our obedience to what God has said. There's a... Uh, I did a sermon at the last ch church I was at staff on, and I caught some flack for this. And you've heard me say it here before. I'm going to say it again because I like catching flack. It's kind of fun. But there's a lot of people that claim to be Christians, right? They're filling all the churches today. They're all over the country. People are going to church. They're like, I'm a Christian. Well, first of all, Christian is not mentioned but three times in the Bible, and it was not a term of endearment. It was a derogatory term talking about people who followed the way. Jesus called his followers disciples. Each and every one of us in here should be disciples. I don't even like to use the word Christian anymore just because it is so watered down. That's irrelevant, but here's the bottom line. Churches all over America are filled with people today who have made Jesus their Savior, but they've never made him their Lord. There's a big difference. You see, to make Jesus your Savior means that, repeat this prayer after me. Jesus, come into my heart. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for shopping at Walmart. You know, and the problem with that is that's the opposite of what Jesus said. He says, go sell all your possessions, pick up your cross, and follow me. And you've been talking about this in, in, on Sunday morning Bible. If you don't come Sunday morning, like 8.45, you need to be there because there's some good teaching going on. That's my little plug for you. That will be $20, I expect that, on my desk. But here's the bottom line. Is that how many people in the church today think that they are right with God because they prayed a prayer, they've been baptized, they've done the things that this world has said 
that they need to do, or that their pastor has said that they need to do, or that their church hierarchy has said that they need to do to be in right standing with God. But they've never made Him the Lord, which means that I lay down my life to follow Him. That my life is no longer mine because it was crucified with Christ, but I am a new creation because of His work, not because of mine. It's not my ability to do it, not my ability to keep it. It is all based off what Christ did, the gift that I freely received, that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And that is it, Ephesians 2. Right? Are you with me? Here's the problem. Churches are filled with people that will die and spend eternity separated from God. Do you know that God does not send anybody to hell? Nobody. He doesn't send one person to hell. They sin themselves. What separates man from God? Sin. Choose life. Choose death. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The reason you see churches in the state they are, the reason you see our culture in the state that it's in, the reason you see society quickly losing any moral value whatsoever is because the church has made a whole bunch of people that think that Jesus is just their Savior but they've not made him their Lord. The reason I caught flack for that is because there's a bunch of people, well, you can't have one without the other. I said, well, I know that. That's my point. In other words, they wouldn't be saved. And that's where we are. Where's the battle? It's right here. Do we fight the enemy? No. We've got to know his wiles. We've got to put on the armor of God so we recognize when something comes contrary to the word of God, we see it immediately. We take that thought captive and put everything into obedience with Christ. You see how all of these line up together pointing to one thing. And you can also see where we've gotten so messed up on it. That's the reason we can't do battle the way we thought. That's the reason our battles never seem to work. is because the battle is right here. Crucifying our flesh. One more thing that I'll say and then I'll be done, I promise. Is and we're going to branch out from here and get into the armor of God because it's important. And as we do that, always have in your mind why did he say put on the armor of God? Which I just I gave you the answer to that. But if you don't believe me, go home and study it yourself. And then look at the weapons that we have and look at them for what they do. Again, we don't have any carnal weapons, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So what do those weapons do? Let's pray and we'll get out of here.